Welcome to another At The Flick Short. Hello and welcome to a very special pod short edition of At The Flicks. On every podcast we have mentioned Phil Foster, a.k.a. Phil the Bear, a man whose film review site we can all learn from. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Phil, I'm very excited today to be talking to you about one of your special articles you put together, a detailed piece of the films of Wes Anderson. So a couple of questions for you on this, having uh, read through it. Why Wes Anderson? What is so special about him for you? There's a few things. So as a sort of film connoisseur, or attempting to be one... um, (laughs) No, you certainly are. (laughs) There's always something in there that you can see. So both in terms of the way he shoots his films, um, I think he's really sort of like Stanley Kubrick in terms of the way that he's very specific and he does lots of tracking shots and... It's like clockwork, the way things move around. And then um, if you move away from that sort of technical level, I think there's a really funny, dry wit and humour in what he does. I just think it's it's not necessarily laugh-out-loud funny, but you definitely have a big grin on your face throughout most of his films. And I just think those two things together, I just think it's a real, really good watch. Excellent. So what was the first film that brought him to your attention? It was a film called Rushmore, came out in 98, so I was the uh, very young age of 17. Oh, thanks, Phil. <laughs> um, and so... We'll interview you, we'll interview you again. <laughs> um, and I think there is something about films that you watch during your sort of early years, when you're sort of developing a love for something, that they really stick with you. And Rushmore was about sort of teenage schoolboy who um, seemed to have everything under control, but nothing under control at the same time. It's romantic and funny, and his whole use of title cards and all those sort of things, it was just a revelation to me at that time. And I've watched everything that he's done since then, and of course sort of picked up and watched his one previous film, which was Bottle Rocket as well. Okay, well I've not seen that one. That's another one I need to add to my list then, I think. Well, you've, you've got two because there's you can go on YouTube and watch a, I think it's a 15-minute or 20-minute short, which is what was his original kind of piece that he made. And then they managed to get the funding to turn that into a sort of 90-minute film. Was that a college for him? So him and Owen Wilson met at university. So yeah, it would have been their college film. So they did a short and then they sort of shopped that around to get funding to make it into a long. So you can watch the YouTube film straight away. It's free. All right, I'll check that out. Thank you. What is your favourite Wes Anderson film, then? So Rushmore, it it takes a lot to beat Rushmore, but I really love... He's done two animated films, and I really love Fantastic Mr Fox and watched that numerous times. One you can watch with the family as well. And then I've got a real soft spot for Moonrise Kingdom as well, which, again, he goes... He takes um, some two young child actors and manages to get wonderful performances out of them whilst having his usual troupe of actors sort of circling around them. I, I think that's interesting. I'll, I'll stick with Moonrise Kingdom for a moment because there's a there's a point you make there that I do find very fascinating is he uses actors that other people seem to shy away from and get good performances out of them. In that, I would say Ed Norton and Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, funnily enough, hasn't returned. Ed Norton has, um, and yeah, he is known to be difficult. I think that if you're in a Wes Anderson film, you're you're signing on to do a very specific thing. He strikes me as he's fully in control. I Mm. think if you're signed on to do his film, 
I kind of get the the idea that the script is the script, and you also are told where to stand precisely when you deliver which part of your line. But uh, <laughs> he also dumped most of a sort of swimming pool of water onto him as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. On top of a clock tower. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that yeah. Kind of helped. Yeah, and he's also. I think Ed Norton's also come along for Isle of Dogs as well, so he gets gets to just give his voice over as well. Oh, don't worry, we'll talk about Isle of Dogs <laughs> in a minute. Yeah, I mean this this quirkiness uh, again. I'll stick with that. But Fantastic Mr. Fox, they recorded in a shed in Roald Dahl's garden, I believe, or at least part of it. Oh, that's new to, news to me. Um, what I do know with his animated films is that the stories I've read is that his attention to detail kind of goes well beyond sort of anyone else's and I think you can see it in his live action films but in his animated films it's very much uh, I often think you could put a ruler up to the screen and make sure that everything's just in the right place yeah I think that's why he goes more and more into animated films because you've got more control as opposed to a live action film where things can go wrong or actors may not give you the performance you want I think you can see it in that his films are very regimented in that the title cards kind of allows him to turn them into sort of unique defined sections and even if you watch something like Budapest Hotel I think there's a scene where a car pulls up to a station and then the people kind of move from the car to the station and the camera kind of pans in a very regimented way and tracks their movement I can imagine that again it's all about that control but it and that's why I say it looks Kubrickian because it's very much about a controlled pan, follow these sort of uh, people. If you look at Steve Zizou's boat in The Life Aquatic, they made that set so that they could actually track along the side of it and follow people through the, the ship itself. Okay. So there's a couple of scenes where you watch Bill Murray kind of like traipsing through the ship and the camera is obviously side on with this set that's cut in half and he traips through multiple rooms on this ship and he's able to sort of go up ladders and you know, move around and the camera can follow in a really regimented sort of way. It never seems to go sort of erratically sort of following someone it's always horizontal or vertical diagonal straight line kind of things didn't they do something similar with the train set in the Darjeeling film I think in the opening sort of sequence they track along the windows of, so you can see into the windows of each of the different compartments of the train and they do a similar thing yeah so it's I don't know if I have a weird thing with enjoying s- symmetry or that sort of thing but I just find the whole thing really really enjoyable to watch for it. Mm. I have a friend who's got a I told him to watch um, a Fantastic Mr Fox and, and Moonrise Kingdom etc and he came back and he said because he's, he's very artistic and he came he, he said he had a headache after all the symmetry yeah, yeah. I'm sure that he's married to or partnered with an artist, and she was part of the the Grand Budapest sort of because quite a lot of Grand Budapest is kind of pastel images and those sort of things. I think she might have had a hand in that. But again, it's art. But I also think it's accessible as well. You can just watch it as a really wry, funny comedy. And you can kind of really, really over-analyse it as well. I find the symmetry part of the humour. Yeah, yeah. It is that 
that so symmetrical that it's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a there's a few like great jokes. There's there's one joke in Rushmore. I'm going to ruin it for Jeff because he's no, not, he's fine, not yeah. seen Rushmore. I'll have forgotten it by the time I watch it. <laughs> yeah. But there's an absolutely great joke that's nothing to do with his uh, visual sort of flair, which is he goes to what he thinks is a date with his teacher or an after party dinner or something like that, and um, she brings along her current like person that she's dating, and he's works in hospital, and he's got operation room sort of scrubs on. Uh, Jason Schwartzman says, in response to a question, oh, are they, in reference to his OR scrubs that he's wearing. And Jeff's looking at me like, that's not funny at all. And I I can't do it justice, (laughs) but... (laughs) Well, it's got to be funnier than Isla Dogs, which we're heading more towards. Um, You mentioned earlier about Stanley Kubrick and, and certainly certain techniques that come in. But I also find with him there's a lot of David Lynch in there. Okay, well, that's interesting. Just Certainly not in tone. No, no, well, some of the quirkiness of the characters come... It's very Lynchian, I would have thought. Not the darker side, but he has... Let me give you Blue Velvet as an example. So in the opening parts of Blue Velvet, certainly not the later parts, you've got the young couple, and the quirkiness that they have in that small-town suburbia, I think, would fit in a Wes Anderson film. Well, I think there's darkness as well, because I think that to quirkiness, absolutely. But actually, certainly his first half a dozen films, death features really prominently, really affects all of his characters. So in Rushmore, you've kind of got three characters who are a bit lost, and two of them are because of deaths of people that they really care about. And the Darjeeling Limited is actually harder to watch now than it was when it came out, because everyone's now aware of Owen Wilson's suicide attempts, which came sort of around the same sort of time. So I think maybe you've got more more right there actually in terms of the darkness as well as just that quirkiness interesting and we we touched on this earlier he's very comfortable using the same actors in many of his films which of these actors stand out for you and, and why would you say i really like jason jason schwartzman so he hadn't done anything prior to rushmore and i think it was a series of auditions to get that role and for a first performance if it wasn't his first performance it's certainly his first major performance it was so fully formed and well realised and I think Schwartzman has gone on to co-write with Wes Anderson on a couple of his films as well I think he's the best thing about the Darjeeling Limited and I think he provides amazing comic relief in Moonrise Kingdom as the it's like the scout camp sort of shop guy yes (laughs) and and there's a five minute short that's available on the dvd and you might be able to find on youtube where he's like the main character for for moonrise kingdom kind of spin-off as well that's very very good Mm, track that Um, down and otherwise you've got to say bill murray right i think he's been in every wes anderson film bar bottle rocket and i i mentioned to you off pod about how james khan was the old man character in bottle rocket and how perhaps there was a missed opportunity for Khan that Bill Murray fills that sort of role going forward in Wes Anderson films. So did he just not get on with Khan or, you know, was there something else there? Because when you look at Bill Murray after that, I think that as long as Bill Murray's free, he will appear in a Wes Anderson film going forward in some form or other. And that's interesting because Murray's another actor over the years, you hear these stories that he's difficult to work with. I heard loads of stories from a set of a film called Mad Dog Glory with the use with De Niro, 
and uh, he was allegedly very difficult to work with there. But he's another actor, like Ed Norton, that's fitted into the mould. Yeah, I mean, I would love to be close enough to films, to be on film sets or in the know to understand what was happening with those um, sort of things. But I guess maybe there's a theatre troupe, isn't it, where there's a really collaborative approach. They're all in it together, and maybe that's part of it. But maybe it's also that Anderson's control gives them a, a very sort of defined space within which to work. So, you know, they're not going to... They either agree with, with it or they don't. And if they don't agree with it, they know there's no scope outside of that. Now, for me, some of his favourite films... We spoke about Fantastic Mr Fox, and I think that's just a, a tremendous piece of work. And The Grand Budapest Hotel, which I also think is, is really good. Just checking your thoughts on Grand Budapest Hotel. I love Budapest. I think it's his first sort of outright comedy... It's properly um, designed to be humorous, whereas all of his other films, I think, are bittersweet dramas. And I really, really love, and this is kind of what I said earlier about you can either take it on face value, it's a really, really funny comedy, or you can get really, really analytical. And I love the different frames that he's used for the different time zones. Mm -hmm. So he's got... There's, I think there's three or four time zones yeah, in the film. Yeah, it goes back. And yeah. each one is set in a different framing device. And when I researched into it, I would have loved to have known this without researching into it, but when I researched into it, each frame is the um, most commonly used frame for a film during the time zone that that period is I set. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, no, I would have I loved to. That. that is obsessive. Yeah, so, yeah. And I mentioned in my piece <laughs> there's an author called... Matt Soller Zeist, I think his name is. Um, and if you really like Wes Anderson, you want to get a bit into the detail. This guy has written some amazing books following his films. And I think he's been kind of with him like along the journey as well because he was like a journalist that was sort of there and around the time that he was making these films. And I, I believe it was through his books that I found that little tidbit of information out. I learned something new there, thank you for that. Okay, we skirted around it long enough. (laughs) I'm not a great fan of the Isle of Dogs. Now, I believe you and we have Neil here who also loved it for some bizarre reason, but that's Neil. Am I correct that I'm the wrong one here? You are the wrong one. (laughs) Absolutely. What did I miss? Okay, so on the face of it, it's a really fun caper movie where the main characters are dogs, right? I mean, what, okay. what's not to like about I thought, that? I thought it was unfunny and racist. <laughs> <laughs> I've read, I've actually read a number of articles, and I, again, I, I probably don't feel qualified enough to comment on the racism because I've read about cultural appropriation. But I think it's, at least in, to my eyes, it's a, it's a love letter to that kind of art style and era so i think it's almost like a love letter to japan in that respect so yeah i mean i i, okay. I don't get that jeff is somebody <laughs> who can obsess about one tiny little bit about the like the um what's yeah. it the paid holidays act from 1938 <laughs> yeah which comes the, up in the it goes shows, on right? and yeah, yeah. on and on about one tiny little thing i don't obsess can ruin a film i just for him. point out where it's wrong <laughs> And then goes on and on and on about it. Again, in quirk, <laughs> in quirkiness, um, so one of the real quirky aspects of it is that he doesn't have subtitles to translate the yeah. Japanese language. Yeah. I think that's a little quirky thing where he's kind of... that. It doesn't matter what the people are saying because the dogs are the characters and you can kind of get it through a translator which he occasionally deploys or just the way that people react to it. And But then, OK, they don't speak English. And I have no problem with that. That's fine. They don't translate it. 
but you have one human character who does speak English, who is American, and who is the one that comes up with the solution to the problems in the end. Just strikes me as Told just you. racist. Just one thing. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> all his, Let Neil all his cover obsession it. With it. All his obsession with it is over that one thing. Okay. You can't. There's no re- reply to it. How can you? It's... So, summing up, you did like Isle of Dogs. I it did, worked for you. I did. I did like Isle of Dogs. It's certainly. I would certainly say it's second tier. Anderson. I mean, it's not as good as Fox in terms of his animated output. And I would still say, uh, if, if I was going to say favorite Anderson films, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Fantastic Mr. Fox. They're the they're the four they're the absolute yeah. must okay. watches. Yeah. Well, that leads nicely into my <laughs> question. Next question: If somebody who's never seen a Wes Anderson film comes up to you and says they want to start watching them, what three would you tell them, and in what order would you tell them just to get them into it? So, if you only watched one and and or like you know the first one, I think it would be the Royal Tenenbaums because that is his third film and I think it's the the first time that he totally nails his episodic chapter based storytelling it's filled with a, an all star cast that most people will know sort of recognise faces so Angelica Houston Gene Hackman and then the Wilson brothers and even Gwyneth Paltrow I think yeah. Paltrow probably her best performance she's ever given that's your first film that you want to watch if you want to get into the quirky Anderson um, I've already mentioned Rushmore which I think is his best film if I'm only allowed three I would push Budapest Hotel out and put um, Fantastic Mr Fox in because I okay. think you need to see one of his animated films just to revel in getting your ruler out and seeing that everything's so perfectly <laughs> framed <laughs> and, and I think that's what's fascinating we're, we're in an age where everything's almost you know in, in harmony when you go see blockbusters the days of Kubrick and, and those characters seemingly long gone and yet this guy comes along makes films his way he's never had a massive Spielbergian success but he's still allowed to make these films time after time. And I think that's a major achievement. Yeah, and I think because he's able to do it on a low budget, I think the fact that he's built up a troupe of brilliant actors who are prepared to follow him around and do this, probably not for the sort of rates that they would normally do films for, um, helps him immensely. And I just hope that he doesn't lose his touch. I mean, the the director, I would say, fits you know that kind of style is somebody like Tim Burton, who arguably did the same film over and over again that was really quirky and enjoyable and suddenly lost his way. And I, I really hope that that doesn't happen to Anderson and he keeps getting to do what he gets to do. I almost hope he never does a blockbuster. He never picks up, doesn't pick up a paycheck to do anything. He just carries on making the same sort of film that he makes. Well, my understanding is his next one's a live-action musical. Yes, I heard. It's not I heard Mamma this. Mia Three, is it? No, no. Um, but I had heard it's a musical, and I'm really looking forward to that because if you can just think about his glorious sort of panning shots across scenes, yeah. and I can almost imagine now. Sort of music. Yeah, I, I can just imagine. <laughs> so a couple doing some kind of twirling dance across the camera as it kind of pans around them, and I just think that's yeah. real sort of match made in heaven for his sort of. Yeah. Well, to be honest, if he does something like Stanley Doan and Gene Kelly did in Singing in the Rain, I'll be there. I'd watch that. Yeah. No question. So, this has been fascinating. And, and, and Phil, anybody who 
hasn't read your article yet, and shame on you if you haven't, where can they find this excellent article? So my website is philverbearblog.wordpress.com and uh, I've got that I've got it separated out so you can go to the features and you will see my feature on Wes Anderson and I've also done a similarly um, large piece on Ridley Scott as well so what's next I have a few notes on my phone and um, I've kind of had I've kind of picked one but it was a short list between David Fincher um, Christopher Nolan I had the the Coen Brothers has one out so I kind of thought the idea of doing um, Christopher Nolan or Fincher would be easier because there's less films I really really like the Coen brothers they have equally quirky sensibilities so I have all my blu-rays lined up and ready to watch and I, I would like to watch them in sequence again which is how I did my Ridley Scott feature and my Wes Anderson feature I think actually watching a director's work in the order that they made it you can really see how they build upon things that they clearly enjoy and like and you could get a much better appreciation of how their sort of artwork kind of builds up as they go along. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Phil. We'll look forward to it. Well, we'll be looking out for that article and we'll have you back on to talk about that. Yeah, it might be might be slightly longer with the Coens, but you might have to keep me cut down to just a handful of their films. No, 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 that's fine. There's films there I didn't like either as well. Barton, F- Barton Fink I hate, so we'll talk about that. Um. Oh no, <laughs> we're not we're not in video. So the look, the look that Phil gave Jeff there was very interesting. Yeah. Okay, yes. Phil, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.